text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when is the last time that you had a good look at the night sky? From within city limits, Much of the beauty of the sky is obscured due to city lights. But what a difference when you go camping and get away from civilization. Recently, we had an opportunity to camp in the White Shell for a few nights. One of those nights was clear. In the middle of the night, I had to get up, and behold, what a sight. I didn't just see the Big Dipper. I saw a multitude of stars around and behind it. Totally awesome. Observing the beauty of the night sky does things to you. Makes you realize that there is a massive universe out there. Earth, our home, is but a little planet in the midst of a vast universe. Thinking about the vastness and splendor of the universe makes you think about where it all came from. Gets you thinking about God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. About God's power and wisdom and splendor and majesty. The Lord not only created all things, He's also put order into the universe so that the planets and the stars move on their set orbits. He has ordered things so that life on earth is possible, so that mankind and animals can thrive in the beautiful world God has made. As a shepherd boy caring for his father's sheep, David would have spent many a night looking at the night sky. His reaction is to break out in song. He sings, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Looking at the vastness of creation makes David consider his place in the midst of this world. David asks, what is man that you are mindful of him, 
the Son of Man, that you care for him. Compared to the grandeur of the universe, we human beings are but puny little creatures. Yet David knows that God has given man an exalted place in this universe. He speaks about how God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, how he has crowned us with glory and honor. He writes about how God has given us dominion over this world and all that's in it. David is amazed that God has invested so much into mankind. When in the scale of things, we are so small, so seemingly insignificant. He recognizes the mandate that God has given to mankind and how we're called to exercise it in a way that the Lord's name may be glorified and praised. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. David leads us in praising God for his majestic wonder. We'll see the Lord's glory revealed in the creation of this world and in the recreation of man. It's striking to note the placement of Psalm 8 in the Psalter. It's located in the middle of ten laments. Psalms 3 to 7 contain five laments, and so do Psalms 9 to 13. In these psalms, David speaks about his distress and about the oppression that he faces. David's confronted with many foes. There are many who seek to take his life. In the midst of his trouble, he cries out to the Lord. He seeks refuge in the steadfast love of his God. In the midst of these psalms, in which David cries out for God's help in days of trouble, we get Psalm 8. So why have the psalms been arranged with Psalm 8 in the middle of ten songs of lament? Or to ask the question another way, does Psalm 8 provide us with any comfort or hope when we're faced with trouble or distress in our lives? I would say that it does. Often when we're in the midst of troubles and sorrows, we lose perspective. Our problems become big and God becomes small. We lose sight of who he is, of his ability and his willingness to help us when we're struggling. David begins and ends Psalm 8 with a refrain. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David addresses God with the name Yahweh. Lord in capital letters in our Bible. It's the name by which the Lord made himself known to Moses at the burning bush. In this name, God taught his people, I am who I am. He alone is the one true eternal God. At the same time, in the name Yahweh, God made known his love and his faithfulness to his people. The Lord stood with his people through thick and thin. He continued his relationship with them, even though they were often rebellious and disobedient. Because of the Lord's commitment to his people, he never walked away from them. He never forsook them. David also calls God Adonai, Lord, 
not in capital letters in our Bible. It's a name that stresses God's sovereignty, the fact that he is king, that he rules over all things. The Lord is powerful, he's mighty, he accomplishes his plans and purposes. The point is that God not only loves his people, he also has the ability to act on their behalf. It's also important to note that David calls this great God our God. In Psalms 3 to 7 and 9 through 13, David speaks in the first person. He speaks about how many are my foes, of how many are rising against me. Throughout these Psalms, David speaks very personally about his struggles, repeatedly using the word I. Yet the individualism of the Songs of Lament disappears in Psalm 8. This psalm is not about the Lord's relationship with one person. Instead, the psalm speaks about God's relationship with all of mankind, or at least with all those who are willing to acknowledge him as Lord. David begins and ends Psalm 8 extolling the majestic name of God. He speaks about how great God's name is in all the earth. God's name stands for his reputation, for who he is. What David is saying is that there's no place in all the earth where God is not Lord. Everywhere, everything depends on him. Paul expressed this same thought when speaking to the philosophers at Athens. He said that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Our life, our existence, our well-being all depend on God. You see, beloved, without God sustaining care, life on planet Earth would cease. God is above all things. He controls all things. He is the ground and the goal of all things. David makes the point clearly when he speaks of how majestic the Lord's name is. Majesty is a royal attribute. Even today, a king or queen is still addressed as your majesty. The point is that the Lord is our all-powerful king. As ruler over all, the Lord blesses all who live on earth with many good gifts. In Psalm 145, David praises God for his providential care. He writes, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Such care is not just reserved for those who love and serve the Lord. God makes provision for the needs of all of humanity. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God also cares deeply about all the animals he has created. This almost often speaks of how he provides food for them. In Psalm 33, the psalmist calls all of humanity to recognize the Lord as God. The psalmist writes, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
Why? Because God is in control of all. Psalm 33 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Remember, beloved, David's complaint in the psalm surrounding Psalm 8. But how many foes rise up against him? But how he is sorely distressed. Psalm 8 gives perspective in the midst of those struggles. Teaches us of how God has a plan for each of our lives. And how, as majestic king, he will accomplish it. Our comfort is that God acts for the good of his people. After praising the Lord's majestic name in all the earth, David moves on to contemplate God's glory in the heavens. David says, you have set your glory above the heavens. David speaks of looking at the Lord's heavens, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars that he has set in place. The Lord reveals his glory and power in the marvelous way in which he created the universe. Psalm 19, from which we sang together, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 147 tells us that the Lord has determined the number of the stars. We know that there are millions upon millions of them in the night sky above us. Psalm 147 says that the Lord gives to all of them their names. One of the points that David makes clear in Psalm 8 is that the Lord has revealed himself and his glory to us in creation. The Belgian Confession picks up on this truth in Article 2, where it talks about how we can know God. The first means by which all of mankind can know God is by the creation, preservation, and government of this universe. If you take time to look at the night sky, or to consider the beauty in creation, you cannot help but be awed by its magnificence. If you ponder on how the universe is ordered to make life possible on earth, on how food is made available for man and animals, you cannot but conclude someone extremely wise designed it all. The universe itself points back to the awesome glory of the Lord, the creator and the preserver of life. We live in a world today that denies God is the creator of this universe. Most people in the Western world will only believe what they can see and experience or prove. Many believe the theory of evolution, that the world began with this big bang, that it evolved over millions of years. They deny what is clearly evident in creation all around them. Due to the magnificence of creation and the orderly manner in which it works, many atheists will now admit that the universe shows signs of what they call intelligent design. But they're not willing to take the next step to acknowledge that the intelligent designer is God. They refuse to give him the glory due to his name. They mock and ridicule Christians for being unscientific 
in their understanding of the world. And yet, beloved, that's different for us. The Bible makes clear where this world came from. It's not just Genesis 1 and 2 that speak about God being the creator of this universe. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. In Psalm 104, the psalmist leads Israel on a song of praise for the wonders of God's creative work. John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ was present with God from the beginning, that all things were made through him. Hebrews 11 says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. With eyes of faith, we believe that God made this world and all that's in it. And so we praise and magnify him for his awesome creative work. This brings us to our second point, and it will see the Lord's glory revealed in the recreation of man. The Lord knows that there are many who are unwilling to acknowledge him or to give him the glory due to his name. And so the Lord does something marvelous. Verse 2 talks about it. David writes, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. This verse speaks about how God defeats his enemies through the weakness of babies and infants. To understand this, we need to see the contrast set forth in our text. David speaks about how the Lord has set his glory above the heavens. We see God exalted above all else. Nobody is stronger, wiser, or greater. And then David talks about babies. Babies are weak. They have no wisdom or knowledge. They're totally dependent on others. Without adults to feed or care for them, they would die. Babies are utterly insignificant in the world's eyes. So why are these babies and these young children here? What are they doing? Well, they're defeating God's enemies. They're opening their mouths and crying or saying something. And what they're saying is powerful enough to quiet the enemy and the avenger. We know that the Lord is the all-powerful God, king of the universe. As David states in verse 2, God has enemies who are opposed to his plans and purposes for this world. The Lord is powerful enough to just snuff out any of his foes. But instead, the Lord chooses to defeat his enemies with babies and young children. Our majestic God doesn't just stoop down to listen to or to take care of little children. God makes them his means of triumph. God conquers his foes through the weakness of the weak by the speech of little children. 
It's kind of hard for us to understand, to get a handle on. Practically speaking, we don't see how the Lord would use babies and young children to defeat his enemies. This is where our reading from Matthew 21 helps us. As Jesus drew drew near to Jerusalem, he instructed his disciples to make preparations for his entry into the city. Jesus had come to Jerusalem for the final time. He would soon be arrested and tried, condemned to death, and crucified. And before that happened, he wanted to show God's people Israel who he truly was. Thus, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This was to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah who wrote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. By riding into the city on a donkey, Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah's messianic prophecy. He showed himself to be Israel's king. The crowd see it. And respond by forming a festal procession, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus went into the temple. He drove out all those who bought and sold. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. He quoted from the prophets saying, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Jesus healed the blind and the lame who came to him at the temple. In a powerful way, he showed himself to be Israel's long-awaited king. There is a twofold response to this. On the one hand, children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means salvation. These children were shouting that God's salvation was coming. They praised God for sending the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, the King who would defeat God's enemies. And on the other hand, we see the response of Israel's religious leaders. They were indignant that Jesus did not stop the hosannas being sung to his praise. They think it's outrageous for Jesus to hear this kind of acclamation and not to put a stop to it or to correct it. They say to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? They're calling you the son of David. They're calling you the bringer of salvation. They're calling you the king of Israel. Do you hear this? Jesus responds with a simple, yes. Jesus heard, and he approved. What Jesus conveyed was that what the little children were saying was not mistaken. They were not foolish. They were not blaspheming. Perhaps to you strong and wise and self-important religious leaders, it seems that way. But in actual fact, these little children are instruments of God. And to make that point, Jesus quotes from Psalm 8. Jesus asked the religious leaders, Have you never read, 
Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. When Israel's religious leaders refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, God used little children to proclaim the truth and to praise him for it. He used little children to praise him for sending the long-awaited Messiah. So why did Jesus quote from Psalm 8? First, we need to note that it comes true. The enemy is silenced. The chief priests and the scribes say no more. Jesus makes clear that this psalm comes true in his ministry. Those who are opposed to him and his work are silenced, while God receives the glory and the praise from the weakest members of society, from little children. Yet there's also a second thing we should note. It's about, what, it's about the content of what these little children say. They proclaim the salvation work of God. They praise him for sending the long-awaited Messiah. The Lord doesn't just receive praise for his majestic work of creation. He's praised for bringing redemption for his people. Beloved, from a young age, we teach our children to know God. We teach them to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And at times, it's amazing to see how God uses that. To see how young people speak and sing, even in public. How they bear witness to the majesty and the glory of God and his mighty works to those who do not know God. They do it in innocence, without intent. But God uses the mouths of babies and infants to ordain praise for himself. He uses some of the weakest members of society to testify to his glory and majesty, both in his work of creation and redemption. In the rest of Psalm 8, we see David's focus. We see David focus on God's glorious work in recreating man. David introduces another contrast. Looking at the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars that he's put in place, he asks, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Well, we compare planet Earth to the vastness of this universe, it's like a little speck of dust. So what does that say about us as human beings? Why should the Lord ever consider us or take notice of us? Compared to the grandeur of this universe, we're but puny little creatures. Isaiah writes about God sitting above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And yet, beloved, we are important to God. Even though we're creatures made from the dust of the earth, we matter to God. Despite our sinfulness and rebellion, God confirms our place 
in his creation. David says this about mankind. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David reaffirms the words of Genesis 1. He speaks of how God has given man dominion over this world and all that's in it. We are God's image bearers on this earth. We have the duty to rule over it in his place. We're called to do so in a manner that gives glory to his name. It's amazing, beloved, to see how in Psalm 8 the Lord reveals man's central role in this world. We know from Genesis 1 that God created man in his image, that we were called to exercise rulership on earth on God's behalf. Yet with a fall into sin, we lost much of what it means to be in God's image. Our goodness was corrupted, our holiness defiled, our ability to exercise control over ourselves and over this world was lost. Man was expelled from the garden with God's curse resting on him. In the sweat of your brow you shall eat, and with pain you will deliver children. And yet in Psalm 8, David praises God for the consideration he gives to mankind. He speaks of God elevating man to a high position, crowning him with glory and honor. He speaks of our calling to rule over creation, as we were commanded to prior to the fall. How can David speak in this manner? Is it really possible for man to take up the calling and purpose God had for us when he first created us? In and of ourselves, the answer is clearly no. The fall into sin rendered us incapable of filling the creation mandate. Yet David recognizes that God has not left us in the midst of our sins and misery. God promised salvation. He promised to raise up a Messiah to redeem his people. The Messiah would not only come to make payment for our sins and to restore us to God's favor. Through his mighty work, he would also transform us. As we see, beloved, how in Psalm 8, the Lord reveals his glory in the recreation of man. By the mighty working of his spirit, God has begun a new life in us. Through the spirit's work, we are transformed. We're changed from the inside out. The spirit renews our minds so we may once more come to know God. He works in our hearts so that we learn to love God and to praise and glorify him for his mighty deeds. He transforms our will so that instead of doing what we want, our prime goal in life is to do what pleases God. This is the sanctifying work that the Spirit does in all those who have been born again. And so, beloved, we see the Lord's majestic glory displayed you see it in creation, in the magnificence of the night sky filled with millions of stars, in the big Manitoba sky with the beautiful sunsets we've been having, in the lushness of the crops and the grasses which God provides as food for man and beast. 
if you stop and take notice, you see God's handiwork all around you. It's a testimony of his power and glory. It's a reminder of how God is big and we are small. Provides us an assurance that in the midst of our troubles and sorrows, we have a God who is Almighty King. A God who's able to help us in the midst of our trials. But that's not all. The Lord also reveals his majestic glory in his dealings with us. We sometimes wonder whether God sees little, insignificant me. We question why God should care about us. But he does. He made it clear in the sending of his son as a long-awaited Messiah to redeem his people. Christ came to pay the price for our sins, to restore us to God's favor. He came to work new life in us so we would be able to take up the mandate given at creation. So we'd be able to rightly rule over this world and all that's in it. So that as adults and children alike, we might rightly know God, heartily love him, and praise and glorify him. So that in our words and deeds, we would give him the glory due to his majestic name. Amen.